0: April is National Poetry Month, and as has become our custom, we focus on the life and work of a particular poet. Although individual poems can certainly be moving and meaningful without knowing anything about the author who wrote them, learning about a poet's life and background can make the entirety of their work more deeply resonant. Our focus last year was on Elizabeth Bishop, and in the future, I look forward to sharing with you about the life and poetry of other major poets, including Mary Oliver, Langston Hughes, Walt Whitman, Audrian Rich, Denise Levertov, Shishlo Malosh, Audre Lorde, and many more. And for this year, our focus is Gwendolyn Brooks. I'll confess up front that prior to researching this sermon, I didn't know much about either Brooks or her poetry. I knew much more about the generation of poets who I came to realize inspired and mentored her, including Langston Hughes in particular, but also Richard Wright, as well as the generation of poets that she inspired and mentored that, again, I knew much better, like Sonia Sanchez and Nikki Giovanni. But when I discovered that Gwendolyn Brooks was the first black person to be awarded a Pulitzer Prize, I was curious to learn more about her. Consider, for instance, two points of reference to what it meant for an African-American woman to win the Pulitzer Prize in 1950. It would be another four years before 1954 and the Supreme Court ruling of Brown versus the Board of Education that racially segregated educational facilities were inherently unequal. It would be another year still until 1955 when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat and helped launch the Montgomery bus boycotts. So from our perspective in the year 2019, I don't want us to miss how remarkable it was for Gwendolyn Brooks to win the Pulitzer Prize in 1950. But at the same time that I'm highlighting Brooks's signature achievement, I also realize that I'm risking getting ahead of myself. So allow me to turn back the clock a little to reflect on how she arrived at that auspicious moment. Gwendolyn Brooks was born in 1917, and her paternal grandfather had been enslaved, but had escaped during the Civil War to fight for the side of the Union. Gwendolyn's father, in turn, dreamed of using that freedom to become a doctor, and although he was able to study medicine for a year and a half at Fisk, which is a historically black university in National Tennessee... Uh, the demands of supporting a family led him to ha- forced him to drop out and had a career as a janitor, in which he was, though, able to support his family. His mother was a schoolteacher who became a homemaker after they started having children. So despite adversities, both parents uh, supported Gwendolyn's potential from really quite a young age. In 1928, when she was 11 years old, she published four poems in a neighborhood newspaper. And you could think, that's cute, right? It's like a lemonade stand or something, right? That's, That's nice. But just two years later, in 1930, at age 13, she landed her first poem in a major national news magazine. That poem was entitled Even Tide. I invite you to hear that poem by the 13-year-old Gwendolyn Brooks. She wrote, When the sun sinks behind the mountains, And the sky is besprinkled with color, And the neighboring brook is peacefully still, With a gentle, silent ripple now and then, When the flowers send forth sweet odors, And the grass is commonly green, And the air is tranquilly sweet, and the children flock to their mother's sides. Then worry flees and comfort presides, for all know it is welcoming evening. If you know additionally that Brooks was raised in the extremely urban environment of the south side of Chicago, this poem becomes even more impressive. It shows both the power of her imagination as well as the variety of environment she was exposing herself to through her extensive reading regimen, equaled only by her extensive writing regimen. Because I don't want to give the impression that she wrote just a handful of poems, most of which were published. The opposite was the case. Rather, her success as a poet was deeply connected to her commitment to writing poetry. She wrote a poem a day from the time she was 11, sometimes two or three. And witnessing this commitment, her parents did what they could to be supportive. Her mother took on more of the household chores than she might have otherwise taken, might have in other cases made Gwendolyn do more, but she wanted to give Gwendolyn more time and energy to write. Her father gave her a writing desk that she treasured. She didn't have a room of her own, but she did have a desk of her own. From that desk, she set her sights on publishing in the Chicago Defender, the most popular newspaper at the time that was focusing on African-American life. And her first poem to appear on those pages was titled, To the Hinderer, and is often interpreted as about the early racism that she encountered. She wrote, Oh, who shall force the brave and brilliant down? There is no descent for him who treads the stars. What else shall he care for mortal hate or frown? He shall not care, his bright soul knows no bars. Take his weak frame and twist it to your will. Strive to discourage and make him fall. Oh, make him suffer, cause his tears, but still shall not his spirit rise and vanquish all. I can almost hear the Maya Angelou there, and still we rise in that. What things the power buried in the skies of man's attempt to bruise and hinder man. What pity has that force for our poor cries when crude destruction is our foremost plan. I think you can also hear in there, she read a lot of the Romans and Greeks of Virgil and Homer and Shakespeare. You can hear that classical influence in her early poetry. And while it's impressive that she published that poem in 1934 at the age of 17 in a national newspaper, it's even more impressive that over the next four years, she published 75 more poems in the Chicago Defender. uh, Gwendolyn was often so single-mindedly focused on her craft that her parents would actually grow concerned, like maybe you're working a little too hard as a young woman. Uh, Her mother would sometimes tell the story of the time she tried to get Gwendolyn to take a break by telling her, there's a big fire down the street. I mean, there, there really was a big fire. And she assumed that, as most young people would, that Gwendolyn would leap up and go see this spectacle, even if it's sad. Instead, Gwendolyn was just writing. And when she heard there was a fire, she said, yes, and kept writing. Another interesting story not too many years later is how at the age of 21 she met her future husband at an NAACP Youth Council meeting. She had heard that a young man about her same age who attended the NAACP Youth Council was also a poet, and she mentioned her interest in him when she saw him come in the room to a mutual friend of, oh, I want to meet that guy, to which her somewhat audacious friend immediately yelled across the room, hey boy, this girl wants to meet you. It worked. Uh, The bold matchmaking was effective, and after dating for a year, Hendry and Gwendolyn were married. Their son was born another year later in 1940, and a few years later, they had a daughter as well. Now, Brooks had always wanted to have children, but I should be honest as well that it really was a struggle for her as well to balance motherhood and taking care of her own house where her mother wasn't there to help her and to keep her commitment to writing. And in 1945, she published her first book of poetry. It was titled A Street in Bronzeville. That was the name of the neighborhood in the south side of Chicago where she had lived since age four. She used to say, if you want a poem, just look out the window. And an example um, of that is the first poem in that first collection. It was titled The Old Marrieds. And it was about an old married couple that she would happened to look in and see in their window. It goes like this. But in the crowding darkness, not a word did they say. Though the pretty-coated bird had piped so lightly all day, and he had seen the lovers in the little side streets, and she had heard the morning stories clogged with sweets. It was midnight. It was a time for loving. It was May. But in the crowded darkness, not a word did they say. Those old marrieds, right? Notice the first word of this book of poems is, but. She's starting in the middle of things, reflecting this partial view of uh, that she would see of people's lives, these little vignettes that she would glimpse on various occasions. Five years later, in 1950, she was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for her second book of poetry, Annie Allen. And with her usual blend of pragmatism and candor, she was honest about how she heard the news. She said, It came at a time my husband and I were having financial problems and our lights were out. Uh, But the phone still rang and a columnist from the Sun-Times called and was asking me, do you know that you have won the Pulitzer Prize? She didn't know. And she said, I felt at once different and the same. Her lights were still out, right? Becoming the first black person to be awarded a Pulitzer Prize in any genre meant that suddenly she had grown up reading the poetry, for example, of T.S. Eliot, and suddenly she was hearing that he was reading her. He and many other famous poets were reading her poetry. And in the wake of this achievement, the Chicago defender listed her in a group of outstanding African-Americans, along with Ralph Bunche, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, Jackie Robinson, the first African-American to play Major League Baseball, Althea Gibson, who broke the color barrier in tennis, Thurgood Marshall, not yet on the Supreme Court, but at that time famous for having been the lawyer that argued uh, Brown versus the Board of Education to the Supreme Court. Amidst this success, it is notable that when accepting her prize, she didn't do as many people do, which is write a speech. She instead recognized what had gotten her there and read a selection of her poetry. She had in mind advice her aunt had given her years before that poets, poet. I should add that Brooks was known to be a superb reader of her poetry, and I'd recommend listening to her reader. Uh, if you Google, um, you can uh, click on video. You can hear a um, hear her reading. Di, is everything all right? Okay. What's up? Someone with the dog in the car is very. Okay, so there's a dog in the car. So if anybody has, uh, they may want to check on that. So check in the office as well if you can. Thanks. Um. Not long after winning the Pulitzer Prize, Brooks published an essay addressing what it meant from her perspective to write as an African-American woman in the United States in ways that presage the Black Lives Matter movement. She said, every black poet has something to say. Simply because they are black, they cannot escape having important things to say. Their mere body, for that matter, is an eloquence. Their quiet walk down the street is a speech to the people, is a rebuke, is a plea, is a school. But no real artist, she continued, is going to be content offering raw materials. The black poet's most urgent duty at present is to polish their technique, their way of presenting, their truths and beauties, that these may be more insinuating and therefore overwhelming. That's what she was going for. And in her next major book of poetry, published in 1960, we see Brooks continuing to use her platform to reflect and refract aspects of um, African American life. One powerful example in that third book of poetry is titled The Last Quatrain of the Ballot of Emmett Till. It begins like this. After the murder, after the burial, Emmett's mother is a pretty-faced thing, the tent of pulled taffy. She sits in a red room, drinking black coffee. She kisses her killed boy, and she is sorry. Chaos in windy graves through a red prairie. She also wrote poems in the coming years about Malcolm X, about Medgar Evers, and other such activist and political subjects. I should add that in 1967, she reached what became for her a turning point. She was attending a writer's conference at Fisk University, that historically black institution where her father years earlier had all too briefly studied medicine. And the upcoming generation of black artists inspired her to more fully embrace the African-American aspects of her identity. She left Harper & Row in the wake of that conference, her longtime mainstream, mostly white publisher, and for the rest of her life only published with black-owned presses in order to economically support black businesses. She began wearing her hair in an afro, and her previously dense poetic style loosened up and became more natural as well. In 1972, looking back at the early years of this shift, she wrote, I, who have gone the gamut from an almost angry rejection of my dark skin by some of my brainwashed brothers and sisters, I have gone to a surprised queenhood of the new black sun. I am qualified to enter at least the kindergarten of a new consciousness now, new consciousness, and to trudge toward progress. And she did continue to grow and develop throughout her life. In 1968, she seceded Carl Sandburg as the poet laureate of the state of Illinois. And she wrote a poem titled Aurora on the occasion of the inauguration of a new governor of that state. As I read it, I think you'll hear that looser style that she came to write in kind of the second phase of her career. I should also note that when she first became poet laureate and learned that it was not a paid position, she said then I may or may not write any poems as poet laureate, uh, but she did. And this is one um, of the more remarkable. She said, we who are weak and wonderful, wicked, bewildered, wistful and wild are saying direct good morning through the fever. It is the giant hour and nothing less than gianthood will do. Nothing less than mover, prover, shover, covel, lever, diver for giant tacklings, overturning new organic sharing that will involve, that will involve us all. We say direct, good morning through the diver, across the brooding obliques, the somersault's ashes across the importances stylishly killed, across the edited bias. The waffling of woman, the structured rejection of blackness, ready for ways, windows, remodeling spirals, closing the hot cliches, unwinding the witchcraft, opening to sun. She was also insistent that being poet laureate should mean more than writing honorary poems and she notably used that position to encourage young inspiring poets not only by setting up poetry contests but by funding them with cash awards. She later brought that same activist spirit to her role as US poet laureate from 1985 to 1986 which was known in her time as poetry consultant to the Library of Congress. Among many other awards and honors, I should be sure to mention that a decade later, in 1995, she received the National Medal of Arts from President Clinton. Five years after that, on December 4th in the year 2000, Gwendolyn Brooks died from cancer at the age of 83. But she was traveling and giving readings until a month before her death. That's how committed she continued to be. And even at the end, in her hospital bed, when she died, she was holding a pen in her hand. Ready to write until the last. I'll share with you just one more um, poem by Gwendolyn Brooks. Uh, one, you, depending on how good your memory is, it may be the one that you read growing up. It's called "We Real Cool." Uh, it's her most uh, widely anthologized poem that she had a love-hate relationship with. On one hand, it's such an honor to have it and had this poem, these few words included, for so many school children to read. On the other hand. It's you know people would be like oh you wrote we real cool and she's like yeah and like three hundred other things but um, so and a novel and anyway uh, anyway but this this re uh, real cool is uh, comes again like a lot of her po- early poetry it comes from her walking through her neighborhood and coming upon this place called uh, uh, the golden shovel and she saw these seven young young black men around this pool table and was just and she asked herself I wonder how they feel about themselves. That's what she's trying to do here. And if you remember the structure of the poem, we is at the end of each sentence that comes before, and then it it breaks. So the, the we she wanted attached to the previous sentence. It's quite short. It goes like this. We real cool. We left school. We lurk late. We strike straight. We sing sin. We thin gin. We jazz June. We die soon. Because that's something also she saw far too often on the south side of Chicago, including to today. She also said um, famously that a lot of people interpreted that jazz June as about sex. And she said, I actually, really just meant it about music, like, <laughs> like Danielle was playing. But she's like, it can be about sex. She said, that's fine. Uh, but that wasn't what she meant two other quick things. Um, one is uh, Nikki Giovanni, the wonderful contemporary poet that was inspired and mentored by uh, Gwendolyn Brooks. Uh, tells of the time, I believe this was in the 70s, that she went to Chicago was invited to have dinner with Gwendolyn at, in her home and after dinner she was she was like, "Well, oh, I better help clean up," right? And she noticed Gwendolyn Brooks starting to clear the table, and she assumed, well, she's Gwendolyn Brooks, I'm sure she has a dishwasher, right? So she said, "Where's the dishwasher?" And to which Gwendolyn Brooks says, "Oh, I don't have a dishwasher." And she's like, "Oh, well, who washes the dishes?" Cuz she's assuming surely Gwendolyn Brooks does not wash the dishes. And she says, "I wash the dishes." And she's like, "Why do you wash the dishes?" And she said, Gwendolyn Brooks looked at her like she had lost half her mind, is what uh, Nikki Giovanni said, and, and Brooks replied, I wash the dishes because they're dirty. <laughs> so, but she said, and, and Nikki Giovanni said, but she'll never forget this either, she said, but I don't dry them. It turns out they dry themselves. So... <laughs> The final thing I'll say is that there's a high school in Chicago that's named after Gwendolyn Brooks. And I think it says there's so many things I could say about her that are quite remarkable, but I think this says a lot by itself. That I think a lot of people, you get a school named after, you're just like, oh, that's pretty cool, right? Um, she she would every year she would write to whoever was principal of that school and ask for a list of all the kids who had won awards and she would personally write to those children. There's just so many remarkable things about her life, and I'll, I'll leave you with that to think about. All of us have our different spheres of influence, and I think well, I'll invite you to think about as we go into the rest of the day, into the week. How are you showing up? in those places where you do have um, some power and influence. And so in that spirit, may you continue your journey in those places, whatever they are. May you continue your journey in love. Care for one another. Care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. As you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly. May you live with thanksgiving.